it's just it's beautiful music. I wish you guys could have done more. Um, and I think you guys have a few more left in you. Yes, so we're thankful for that. Um, just a word about about the academy. They actually came down for a. It's called it's the the annual bell choir festival, and that was was that last night, yesterday, all day yesterday. And those are all sorts of Adventist academies that come together. And so, if I understand correctly, you guys came the furthest distance. Well, yeah. How long did it take you guys to get here? Ten hours, with a car full of kids. <laughs> it's like twenty hours. And, um, and actually, if I understand correctly, tonight you will be playing at Disneyland. Tomorrow. Tomorrow you'll be playing at Disneyland. So we are glad that you guys actually made us one of your stops. To all of you, thank you. Um, we, yeah, let's just another kind of applause. With that said, will you bow your heads with me as we prepare our hearts? Gracious God, I want to thank you that we have this opportunity to worship together, to be here together, to laugh together, to sing together, to pray together, and to open up your word. So now we pray that all of the distractions, all of those things going on in our minds that are running a million miles an hour, um, that you would just silence all of that, and that you would help us to be present to your truth. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So this morning, we are continuing our sermon series, our teaching series. Does anybody remember what it's called? Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord, I have sinned, but I have several excellent excuses. And um, this, this morning, we're going to be talking about the sin of half-heartedness. Now, as we get started, there are two definitions that I want to give you to kind of help us understand the words that I'll be using throughout this sermon. So the first word is a word we know well, and it's one that has all sorts of like, connotations to it. So as Christians, as Seventh-day Adventists, we often use the word or the term the world, right? The world, in our minds, usually when a preacher will get up here, will say, uh, don't be of the world. And the, growing up, the, the things that preachers would say is, don't drink, don't dance, and don't do drugs. Well, I could never dance, and I still can't. And uh, drinking and drugs were in my issue, so I thought, man, I'm good. I'm like a holy guy, but the truth is, when the Bible writers talk about this, this term, the world, um, I think it's easy to sum up to say that it is any time that you act in a way that is selfish or contrary to the way that Jesus lived. This is a better definition because it encompasses our lives, not just the things that we do sometimes, but our outlook and our understanding of how we interact with other people in the world. So the opposite of this would be the way of God, and, and a way to define that is when you embody and live out the way of Jesus in every interaction that you have. So though on the one hand, the way of the world is to be selfish and do what you want and say what you want, regardless of what the other people hearing, how they're going to feel. It doesn't matter. The way of the world is I have something to say, and I'm just going to say it, and I don't care how that makes you feel. That's selfishness. On the other hand, we have the way of God, which is how would Jesus react in this situation? How would Jesus treat this person or that person? What would Jesus say? Or as the popular bracelet we used to say, what would Jesus do? So with that in mind, I want to talk about this morning about something that I think, um, I'm not a prophet, but I believe that all of us have an issue with. How many of you ever experienced conflict in your life? Yeah. This morning's teaching, now we're going to have to go kind of fast because I, I have a way of putting things in lots of pieces of paper. Um, so we're going to try to go fast. But yeah, all of us, all of us, all of us have conflict. This teaching, though, if you take it to heart, 
All right. If you take the words of Jesus and the words of Scripture to heart and you try to implement what we're going to do, talk about this morning, it will improve your marriage if you're married. It will improve your relationship with your boyfriend or girlfriend. It will improve your relationship with your parents. Uh, parents, it will improve your relationship with your kids. Church members, it will improve your relationship with other church members. This teaching has the potential to change your life. But you can't go about it half-heartedly. There's, um, I've read some studies that say that the people you hang out with will determine um, who you are and the things that you will do or won't do. So one of the things they say is if you're trying to lose weight but your friends aren't and they eat whatever they want to and drink whatever they want to, if you hang out with them, you're probably not going to lose weight. They say that you and your friends over time, if it's the same group of friends, will maintain about the same uh, weight, all right? It's true. I've seen it in my life, although I'm trying to fix that. But yeah, I have two best friends, and we were weighing the same until I started kicking up my training, you know, and it's still, we're still kind of the same. <laughs> but it's the truth. The people you hang out with, the people you associate with that become your kind of base, you will become like them. Now, one of the things that happens as a Christian is we do live in this world, correct? This is where we live. This is our home. This is where we live our lives, but what ends up happening is as Christians, sometimes we allow the way the world does things um, infiltrate the way we then do things. And so this kind of shows up when it comes to conflict. How many of you have ever said something that you wish you could take back? Yeah, me. How many, how many of you have ever said or done something that you knew was hurtful as the words were coming out of your mouth, but you did it because that was the point to hurt someone else? You see, as Christians, we, we adopt the way that the world does things when we want to just say what we want to say, do what we want to do, regardless of what someone else is going to feel. Oftentimes, it's the people that are closest to us that we end up hurting. You don't really hurt a stranger, right, because you're a stranger and there's nothing connecting you, but oftentimes we hurt the people that are closest to us. This morning's teaching is about how do you relate to the people that are around you, the people who are closest to you. How do you be more godlike and less worldlike when it comes to conflict? So I want to look at what Jesus does and says. So if you have your Bible or if you want to read along with me on the screen, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 26. When it was evening, he, Jesus, took his place with the twelve, and they were eating. This is at the Passover. This is the Last Supper, right? The painting that we see all everywhere. And Jesus says, truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. The one who has dipped his hand into the bowl will betray me. Now, at that point, all I have to know is, hey, somebody's going to betray you. At that point, you're going to kind of keep your, you're going to be on the lookout, right? You're going to tell the people who are closest to you, someone's going to do something to me, so can you just kind of keep, you know, be aware something's about to happen. It's kind of like in the cartoon where Wile E. Coyote, the piano, always seems to fall on him. If you know the piano's going to fall on you, you're going to try to move, right? You're going to try to dodge it. So when Jesus says, the one who is going to betray me is sitting here, it's going to happen tonight. He's dipped it, right? He's describing the bread being dipped into the, into the wine, I would be on the lookout. 
You know, I, I would expect Jesus to have some sort of trick up his sleeve, almost like in those movies, right, when it's one of those really suspenseful movies and the plot keeps getting, you know, more and more suspenseful. And then at the very end, they kind of, the, the person gets caught or whatever it is, right? It's like we're expecting Jesus to at the very last moment, like, catch the person who's going to betray him. But if we continue with the story, uh, we want to look at what Jesus actually does. What, what is Jesus' trick up his sleeve it says that Jesus got up from the table, took off his outer robe, tied a towel around himself. Then he poured water in a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was tied around him. Jesus was about to be betrayed. Jesus says, I'm going to be betrayed. He says it twice. Jesus even says it's going to be one of the 12 of you guys And then instead of Jesus trying to interrogate everybody, instead of Jesus getting to him first and and saying something to expose this guy, instead Jesus kneels down, ties a towel around himself, and begins to wash the feet of his students. The trick of Jesus' sleeve wasn't to betray the betrayer first. Instead, it was to serve the betrayer How many of you have ever been hurt by somebody and instead of trying to reach out to them or trying to make amends, you just pull back? That's not what Jesus did. So I want to look at another passage. It says, do you know, so then here's Jesus' trick number two. Oh, no, no, not yet. This is just an explanation. Do you know what I have done to you, Jesus says in response to his washing their feet? So if I, your Lord and teacher, basically if me, your master, the person who's teaching you everything, if I have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have set you as an example that you should do as I have done to you. In the face of betrayal, in the face of being backstabbed, literally being sold for 30 shekels of silver a day's wages, Jesus serves his disciples. Jesus does what maybe none of us would want to do, but rather he extends his hand in peace, and he does something that only a servant would do. Sometimes we don't want to do that in our lives because it means we have to swallow our pride. Sometimes when we have been hurt, it means that by not retaliating, it's almost as though we are absorbing this pain, and sometimes it's excruciatingly painful. And Jesus uses that, and he channels it by serving his disciples. So let's go to another, another secret of Jesus's here that isn't really a secret. Luke 23, verse 24. Then Jesus said, as he's hanging on the cross, right, he has been beaten, he has been whipped, he has had a crown of thorns, he is bleeding, he is in pain, his arms are nailed to the cross. I mean, Jesus has experienced the probably worse than you have ever experienced because in a few moments he would actually die, which none of you have died. So Jesus has experienced the worst. And so while Jesus is on the cross, he says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. When Jesus could have just as easily winked his pinky and killed them all, or at least made the pain go away, or Jesus could have done anything he wanted to while he was on the cross, after he had literally been beaten up and stabbed in the side, and spit on, and whipped, right? If you think that you've been through a lot, I don't think it compares with this because Jesus didn't do anything to deserve this. He was innocent, and Jesus' response is what? Father, forgive them. 
Jesus' second trick up his sleeve is to forgive those who have harmed him. This is hard. These are the kinds of things that some of the people that were following Jesus after Jesus would teach something, they would say, that is a hard teaching. Who can do it? And then the Bible tells us that people would leave Jesus. They would stop following because what Jesus was asking them to do was actually hard. Is Christianity hard? Yeah. Yeah, it is. This is a hard teaching. It's hard. It's not heavy, but it's hard. We say whenever religion or your faith becomes heavy, it's time to reevaluate your religion. But Christianity is kind of hard because it requires you to love the people that you don't want to love. Christianity requires you to be kind to the people that haven't been kind to you. Christianity requires you to forgive because you have been forgiven, not because that person deserves to be forgiven. Can I say that again? Christianity demands you to forgive those who have offended you, not because they deserve it, but because God has forgiven you. Your relationship with God must determine and inform how you interact with other people. Now, if this sermon wasn't hard enough, it's going to get even harder. Amen? Amen? Come on, everybody. You're here in church on a Saturday morning when you could be sleeping in, okay? The Bible isn't just fairy tales. And it's okay to say that it's hard to be a Christian. That's okay. Like, we're not... By, by the way, I need to make this caveat. I'm not saying that you're doing all of this because you in your salvation. We've already talked about that time and time again. We don't do this because we think it's going to earn God's love or merit us salvation. That's not at all what I'm saying. I'm saying that we all choose to live our life by a certain set of moral standards. Amen? We all choose. We all choose, whether it's Oprah, whether it's Dr. Phil, whether it's the Bible, whether it's Buddha, whether it's Mohammed, whatever it is, we all are choosing a path. I believe that if you're here, you've chosen the path that is found in Scripture, the way of Jesus. And so that's what we're teaching here. That's just what we do. Sometimes it requires a lot more of us, and that's okay. Because the Bible tells us that God helps us, God fills us, God is working and continuing to shape us. So it's okay. You're not going to be perfect. We're not preaching about how to get to heaven. Jesus has already taken care of that. We're just talking about how do we improve our relationships here today. So we're going to go on to the main passage that was read for us. Okay, so Jesus responds with service and forgiveness. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Jesus was simply quoting the Levitical law. Jesus was quoting the way that they did things, right? So if somebody took out your eye, you had permission to go and take out their other eye. If they took out your tooth, which is kind of weird, I don't know how that would happen, but if they pulled one of your teeth out, then you could pull their tooth out, I guess, or punch it out. I don't know how it works. Now, this wasn't like... This wasn't like, okay, you have to do it if they do that to you, right? It was just, it limited how much you could do to them to get back at them. Does that make sense? So, like, if they took your eye out, you weren't supposed to go kill them, right? It was supposed to limit the amount of how you would get back. Also, if you're about to, for some unknown reason, take someone's eye out, I think that if you knew this was about to happen, then you'd be like, wait, but I like my eye, so I think I'm not going to take their eye out. You know what I mean? Maybe I'll just hit them in the arm or something. I don't know. But this was supposed to limit the the amount of what you could do back to somebody. And so Jesus says, you've heard that it was said. Jesus was basically saying, I know this is your law. This is how these Jewish people were living. This was their law. He says, I've heard that it was said, but I say to you, do not resist an evildoer. 
But if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. And if anyone wants to take your coat, give your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go also the second mile. Now, this is a loaded passage, and I can't get into the full ramifications of it. So I'm just going to do one aspect of it. What we find is that there are two patterns that are going on here. The first pattern, as I said, is based on the Old Testament justice system, right? That what we would understand as the Old Testament justice system, which was their way of living. And then you have this other way where Jesus then introduces, he says, but I say to you, Jesus was changing things up on them. Jesus was literally turning their whole world upside down. And he says, okay, I know this is what, you know, I said thousands of years ago. But you know what? It's not working. So now I tell you this. Do not resist an evildoer. If they strike you on the right cheek, turn to them the other. If anyone wants to sue you, take your, give them your cloak. If anyone forces you to go one mile, then go a second mile. It doesn't seem fair, does it? If you've been insulted, hurt, or betrayed, the last thing you want to do is put yourself in a situation for that to happen again. Now, here's another caveat. This is not talking about you being in an abusive relationship, whether it's physical, mental, emotional, sexual, whatever it is. It's not saying if they're doing, if they're abusing you, it's okay to go back. That's a whole separate other conversation. This is just everyday, daily life. You get tired of your wife doing this thing and you tell her to stop, or or wives, you get mad at your husband. I'm talking about that kind of stuff, everyday stuff. Abusive relationships, get out. It's plain and simple because that's not what God has created us for. That's a separate conversation for another day. What we're going through here is when you feel like you've been, like you got the short end of of the stick, to then keep going and helping that person doesn't feel good. It almost feels like it's painful. It hurts. It almost feels like a death. But the central story of Christianity is that after death, there is always resurrection. That Sunday is coming. That on Friday, Jesus lays his life down. But on Sunday, he is resurrected. And that changes everything. Sometimes we will have to absorb pain and suffering. But the Bible never tells us to retaliate in an equal way. But rather, Jesus says, fine, let him but you do not act that way to them because you are living by a different standard. So you can choose to be the worldly and revenge yourself and get back at them twice as much, talk about them behind their back, spread rumors about them, uh, and you might feel justified in doing all of those things, right? But that's the worldly way. That's the way of the world. Or you could choose to be the way of Jesus, and he says, fine, if they ask you, if they ask you to go one mile, go a second. If they hit you on the right cheek, turn your left. This is symbolic and metaphoric as well. This is about so what? Whatever they do will not destroy you. It will not hurt you forever, but you have the power to conquer it. There's a story, um, there's a story that I read that I kind of want to share that kind of it, it made sense to me. There's a story of two farmers that live next door to each other, and there's a fence. One day, one farmer's cows... They, 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 um, they knocked down the fence. They went over and messed up the other farmer's garden. So that farmer says, hey, you know what? Your cows did this. I am not going to give them back to you until you pay me what it costs to fix this garden and the fence. Well, the first farmer says, fine, okay, I'll give you the money because I need, I need my cows back. Ironically, a few days later, the same thing happens but switched. 
The second farmer's cows, they go, they knock the fence down, they ruin the guy's garden. And so that night, the gardener comes and he says, okay, I know what I have to do. I have to pay you. And that second, the, the first farmer says, no, no, you don't. It's fine. Here, have your cows. To which the farmer responds, that doesn't make any sense. So he goes away and he comes back that night with all the money that he had paid, that the first guy had paid him. And he says, you don't have to do that. And he says, no, I do. Because I want whatever it is that you have, and maybe this is a start. You have the power to change the world around you. I tell my 10-year-old, and I tell my 15-year-old, and I tell my 17-year-old, because they're all playing sports, right? So they play different sports, each one of them. But mostly what I tell my 10-year-old is I tell him, I said, you, I tell him, you have the power and the ability to change the game. I tell them, if you guys are getting down, if you guys are kind of, you know, losing or whatever, I said, your, your energy and your ability to push yourself, I said, can actually turn the tide. It'll change. It's, it's, it's contagious when there's one person who believes, which is why we love Kobe Bryant. <laughs> Guess we're not Laker fans here, which is why we like Mike Trout or whoever's on the Angels. I don't know. But I tell them, I tell them, I said, you have the power to change the game. I tell all three of my kids that. The truth is it doesn't just relate to sports, but it relates to your family, to your friends, to your church, to your work, to your friendships, to everything that is around you. You have the power. The power has been given to you to change the way things are. Now, you can sit and complain about what everyone else has done to you, or you can use those opportunities to extend service, forgiveness, grace, and respond in kindness. But it's perfect because, yeah, Lord, I did act this way, but this is why I did it. It's the title of our series. Yes, Lord, I've sinned, but I have several excellent excuses. So for just 10 seconds, there's this thing called the myth of redemptive violence. And basically it's this. If somebody hits you, if you hit them harder and knock them down, then, then you win. But that's not true, right? If you get hit harder and go down, what are you going to do? You're going to come with a bulldozer and knock that person down. And then it goes back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. This happens in our relationships. Maybe it's not physical, but maybe it's the words that we say. Maybe it's the things that we do. Maybe it's the rumors that we spread. Whatever it is, just because that person says something to you as a Christian doesn't give you the right to get back at them tenfold. Because Jesus has forgiven you for the sins that you have done up to today. So that means all your past, whatever you've done, Jesus has forgiven you. Amen? But you know what also Jesus has done? He has also forgiven you for what? For everything you're going to do. Did Jesus die an unfair death? Did he deserve to die? Not according to what the Bible says. But he dies. He absorbs everything that you deserve to die for. I know that's kind of, if, you're, if we have visitors today, talk to me after about what that means. Um, but Jesus takes on all of that. And he forgives you. And he doesn't throw it in your face. He doesn't bring it back up. He does it because he loves you. So don't you think that a person who would do that, doesn't he expect you to do something similar for those who have hurt and betrayed you? That can bring healing to a marriage. That can bring healing to friendships. That can change where you work. 
that can change a church or a school. You have no control over what other people are going to say or do, but you have all of the control as to how you will react. The way of the world allows itself to be led by its feelings. So the way the world works is it allows your feelings to determine how you are going to treat someone else. But the way of God doesn't use feelings to determine how I'm going to treat that person, but rather it looks at what God has done, what God has done for me, and then in turn, I will, I will deal with this person that way. It's hard not to get mad or hurt or upset. Jesus goes on. I'm just going to go through this quickly, all right? Jesus goes on to say in the same passage, give to everyone who begs from you and do not refuse anyone who wants to borrow from you. This is hard in it of itself, but we're going to keep going. You have heard that it was said that you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. How many of us, and I'm not asking you to raise your hand, could honestly say that you love your enemies because if we turn on the television, I think that we don't see love. I mean, just for instance, right, just something that we can always point to. Just in politics, I mean, two sides are always, I, I have yet to hear in my young life, uh, well, maybe I have, but, but I hardly ever hear someone from one side praising someone from the other side for something they did. That's like little kid stuff. That's why I turn off politics. That's why it gets on my nerves. Because all it is is a bunch of people talking about how the other side has it wrong and they're bad and they're, they want America to suffer. I, I, they're elected officials. They've gone through a lot. I think they want America to be great. I mean, I just think that's true. I think that we have different views of how it gets there. But they, like, hate each other. But you know what? It doesn't just happen in politics. Sometimes it happens in our families, in our friendships, Sometimes we lose friends because of things that have been done. Sometimes we don't even talk to our family members because of something they've done. Sometimes there's people in church who maybe walk past each other for years because they did something to one another, and they still come to the same church, but they don't talk to each other because of something that happened. This happens everywhere, and it's not the way of Jesus. Jesus shows us service and forgiveness and then he drops it. He doesn't keep bringing it up. Jesus says, do not repay evil for evil, but take thought for what is noble in the sight of all. Do not repay evil with evil, no matter how much it hurts, no matter how untrue is what they said, no matter if that other person deserves to get knocked down by a bulldozer. <laughs> Jesus says, don't repay evil for evil. And then we go on to one longer passage. I'm just going to read this. I don't, it doesn't need much explaining. Paul says, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they are thirsty, give them something to drink. For by doing this, you will heap burning coals on their head. This is, now, this is God's way of being comedic and ironic. This is how you get to get back at the person that hurt you, betrayed you, stabbed you in the back, and then some. This is, this is your vengeance. Treat them with kindness, service, and forgiveness. As a matter of fact, go that extra mile and treat them with so much kindness till it hurts. And then our reward is it's like heaping burning coals on their head. Don't just be nice because this is what you want to do. Be nice because it's what God has done for you as well. 
but do not overcome but do not be overcome by evil but overcome evil with good and then we go back to where we started be perfect therefore as your heavenly father in heaven is perfect this isn't talking about sin this is talking about treat others the way Jesus has treated you. Do the very best that you can to live into the model that Jesus has, has shown and been an example of. If you do this, this is what it means to be Christian. To be Christian doesn't mean that you're just a, against other things, right? Or, oh, I'm against this group of people or those kinds of people because they do this. It's not, that's, not, that's not even in Scripture to be that way. This is very clear. People always ask, well, what is the will of God? I mean, it's pretty clear that one part of God's will is to treat others with kindness, with goodness. And then it says, do not be overcome by evil. You do not be overcome by evil, by wanting to act in such a way, but rather overcome evil with good. And I'll end with this thought. The reason this, the title of today's sermon is um, the sin of half-heartedness is that you can't do everything I just said if your faith or your commitment to Jesus is only you know, one step in, one step out. You can't have one foot in and one foot out. To do this, it's all or nothing. It's not, well, I'm going to be nice until they're nice back. No, sometimes it means I'm going to be nice and kind and forgiving, even though they may never respond in kind. The sin of half-heartedness is whether are you fully committed to Jesus and the way of Jesus, or are, only, or are you only halfway committed, in which case don't be committed at all. Because it's, it, you, you won't do it. You can't do it. It's an all-or-nothing proposition. And my prayer and my challenge for you this morning is that you would go over these words again. It'll be on the website. Um, the, the sermon will be on the website this week sometime. Go over it again. Read the passages that we read this, this morning. And then see how God will shape you and change you as you interact with people in your lives. Amen. Amen.